This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. When we feel better, we do better. That simple message is what Feel Better with Tara Styles is all about. We share informative, inspiring, and healing conversations with respected leaders whose work embodies the action of making our world a better place. We also share simple practices based in meditation, tai chi, and gentle yoga that are a relief to breathe along with, whether you have time to stretch out on the ground or you're busy getting ready for your day. Settle in and enjoy learning something new that will surely support your well-being, inspire your creativity, and help you feel a whole lot better. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Hello, FP Playlist listeners. This is Ravi Agrawal, Editor-in-Chief of Foreign Policy. For this week's playlist, we're featuring the latest interview from FP Live, our magazine's forum for live journalism, where we discuss world affairs with the greatest minds and experts. Take a listen. Hello, and welcome to FP Live, Foreign Policy Magazine's Forum for Live Journalism. I'm Amelia Lester, FP's Executive Editor, and it's my pleasure to be your host for this special edition of FP Live with Foreign Policy's very own in-house team of reporters. Amy McKinnon covers national security and intelligence. Robbie Grammer is our diplomacy and national security reporter. And Jack Detch covers the Pentagon and national security as well. We'll bring them all on in just a minute. But before we bring the reporters in, a few quick ground rules. If you've attended one of these before, you know how it works. If it's your first time with us, FP Live is where we convene experts, analysts, and policymakers to discuss world affairs and foreign policy. Subscribers get to ask questions too, which I sometimes select or at least use to inform my line of questioning. And you can write those in the comments box, and you can also read lots of our related content as well. Ahead of today's program, we polled foreign policy followers on what they wanted to hear our expert panel of reporters discuss today, and the overwhelming response was developments in the Ukraine war. There have certainly been a lot of them. So let's get right to it and hopefully get you answers to the questions you have about the war and inform you about something you didn't know before today's discussion. Russia's war in Ukraine has officially entered its eighth month with no real end in sight. In efforts to help his faltering war effort, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced a partial military mobilization last week. He issued new nuclear threats as well, and he promised a series of referendums in Russian-controlled territories that we'll definitely talk about. The announcement of the military draft sent shockwaves through the country. They, They were followed by reports of a mass exodus of young Russian men attempting to escape the draft. And satellite images show traffic jams near the border crossing between Russia and Georgia. The numbers of men trying to get out continue to grow at other border crossings with neighboring Kazakhstan and Mongolia too. And Moscow is now reportedly using coercion to force them back to fight in Ukraine. 
All of this is happening as Ukraine's counteroffensive shows signs of success with incredible gains in eastern Ukraine, where they have retaken territory and where Russian forces are badly bruised and retreating. So let's dive into the questions and get our audience the latest reporting and insights on this topic. Amy, Jack, and Robbie, thanks so much for being here today. And to our audience from around the world, welcome to this edition of Reporters Notebooks on FP Live, where we plan to discuss what's behind the headlines. So let's start with you, Jack. The last time that you and Robbie and Amy were on FP Live, the situation was looking in Putin's favor. There had been serious Russian gains in the eastern part of Ukraine, but now the Russian army is fatigued and it seems plagued by low morale and is retreating. So, Jack, bring us up to speed on what has changed in the last several weeks. What do the latest gains by Ukraine's military mean in the long run for Vladimir Putin's war effort? Amelia, it's a whole new ballgame from when we talked last. The Ukrainians have retaken about 2,000 square kilometers of territory mostly in the far east of the country. That's about the size of Joe Biden's home state of Delaware. And now they're threatening, as we speak, the critical railroad junction of Liman. That would just give them another ace in the hole as they've been seizing these major Russian railroad junctions. So not only are the Russians trying to throw more manpower in, potentially unsuccessfully, they're doing it and they can't move around the country. So this would be a major Russian scalp for the Ukrainians to take really immobilizing the Russians. But but more importantly, this changes the dynamic between the United States and the Ukrainians, which had over the summer been sort of the Ukrainians coming back to Washington, tugging on the purse strings, saying more, 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 and getting the answer, wait, 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 from the United States again and again. Now what we're seeing in the last aid package from the Biden administration announced yesterday, they're doubling the number of HIMARS rocket launchers that will go to the Ukrainians. They'll now have 36 on the battlefield. This has been tremendously important to the Ukrainians for cutting Russian supply lines, uh, for killing uh, high-profile generals, high-profile officers. So the Ukrainians are potentially going to have a lot more firepower. And it shows you that the United States, the Pentagon, is a believer after this, uh, this major seizure of territory in the East that the Ukrainians can successfully take back territory after just months of bogged down fighting. So amidst all of the seizure of new territory by the Ukrainians, Putin's spokesperson reportedly said that Putin's going to hold a ceremony tomorrow to declare the annexation of partially occupied territory in Ukraine. All of this after Russia released what it called vote tallies showing 95% support in the four regions to join Russia. So the West and Kiev have said this is a sham and that Russia staged these referendums. Robbie, tell us about these referendum results, how to read them, Will it change anything in the war? And what what should we expect? I mean, I think the only way to read these referendum results is is that it's it's a um, it's a full fledged sham. There there are videos going around on on Telegram, um, Russian social media sites, Ukrainian social media, uh, showing the the quote unquote uh, election officials counting uh, reams of totally blank ballots as as yes votes, um, and the the results show overwhelmingly in favor of of uh, these these four territories joining joining Russia, uh, according to the Russians. Um, but I think, you know, in the context of the war, um, you can see this as a, as a big escalation on Putin's part, because he um, he has alluded to you um, deploying Russia's nuclear weapons to defend Russian territory. And there's a question now of 
um, does this unilaterally declared Russian territory that's in Ukraine count as Russian territory for how he'll think about escalating this war, if he'll think about escalating it and possibly even using tactical nuclear weapons, which is a big fear among NATO defense planners and, and Ukrainian defense planners right now. So even though the referendum is a sham, there's no way it'll be um, internationally recognized um, in the United States and all of its Western allies still recognize these territories as fully sovereign Ukrainian territory. Um, I mean, this does really seem like a point of no return for Putin as he tries to escalate this war and, and, and carve away some gains from a really fumbling and failed military effort so far. Amy, just staying on these referendums for a little, what do we know about the mood in those territories? I mean, do they, do they want to join Russia? What, what can you tell us about um, how they're feeling? I mean, it's obviously very difficult to get uh, a real sense of the mood in these territories. They're occupied by Russian soldiers, but the reporting that we have seen so far from reporters that have been able to speak to these regions and people who have fled these fled these regions um, is that overwhelmingly, you know, of course, these referendums, as Robbie said, are a sham. Um, you know, having having lived under months of Russian occupation, I think there's no illusion what uh, what the Russian world now means for these people. Um, uh, and, and, you know, and even if people did want to vote in these referendums, genuinely, there's no way that there could ever be seen as free or fair because there's been reports of, you know, Russian soldiers standing there with guns at polling stations, taking people to, you know, threatening people to go to polling stations. And so um, even those who are voting, many, of course, are doing so out of fear. And Kiev, I should also said, has told its citizens not to go and vote in this referendum as well. But the other thing I would add on the referendums is, is how this plays into the Russian kind of war narrative. Um, the Kremlin does... Uh, for kind of baffling reasons, invest a lot of energy into uh, the veneer of plausible deniability. I mean, we saw that in 2014 with, you know, the referendum regarding their annexation of Crimea uh, with these kind of sham republics that they set up in eastern Ukraine. And we're seeing that as well. But I mean, whilst Crimea gave uh, Putin a huge popularity bump, I doubt we're going to see that with the annexation of these territories in Ukraine. I mean, Crimea is, you know, it's a holiday resort, it's beach resorts, it's, you know, it's a beautiful area, which Russians feel very strongly about many holidays there as children, they have strong memories of it. These regions that, you know, that are, you know, potentially about to be annexed from Ukraine, it's a lot of farmland, it's a lot of former mining territory. So if you think about Crimea, you know, the annexation of Crimea and that joining Russia, it's like, you know, it's like gaining Hawaii, these territories, um, you know, it's like Kansas, it's just not going to have that same kind of um, uh, significance for, for, uh, for the Russian public. So I doubt Putin will see that same kind of bump in popularity after this. And staying on that topic of the Russian public, you all recently reported that Putin is now at the point that he's willing to risk domestic, domestic unrest, which brings me, of course, to the mass mobilization of Russian troops. This was in large part a response to those recent losses that we talked about and the Russian military's retreat from eastern Ukraine. Amy, I want you to break down for our audience what this draft has looked like across the country. Who is it impacting? Who's dodging the draft maybe? And overall, how has it been received? It has been extremely messy. I mean, it looks like in doing a partial mobilization, uh, the Kremlin was trying to thread the needle between doing an all out mass mobilization, but trying to find a way to kind of jimmy up a few, few hundred thousand troops to, to stem those horrendous losses that they're seeing on the battlefield in Ukraine. And I think they thought that this would be a way to kind of sneak it past the public and maybe not provoke quite so much outrage. That, of course, hasn't worked because of just, you know, the messy corrupt dysfunction of the Russian military system. Uh, you know, it, there was strict limits on who was supposed to be called up. It was supposed to be reservists. It was supposed to be people with previous military experience, you know, uh, 
people with health conditions weren't going to be called up, people with more than four children. But that hasn't happened. I mean, there's been reports coming from Russia that, you know, pensioners are being called up, they're receiving their draft documents. I saw one report that a man who had um, who had brain damage had been called up for the draft, you know, men with several children, people who are not supposed to be to be called up. And what that has done is it has just, I think, put the fear of God into Russian men of almost any age. And we're seeing that play out in the borders as, you know, there's reports that, you know, potentially hundreds of thousands have already fled and are looking to flee to countries neighboring Russia. Certainly, I've been messaging with friends of mine in Moscow. Some have already left the country. You know, others are looking for, for ways to get out. And these are not people who are reservists or who would be expected to be drafted. But I think there is this expectation that, you know, the knock on the door could could really come for anybody. Um, and the other thing to say about the draft is it, it it's very hard to tell how many people being called up and in which regions, but based on kind of videos that we're seeing on social media, it does seem to be that there is a disproportionate recruitment effort going on um, in republics that are uh, inhabited by ethnic minorities and Russians. Um, so places like such as Dagestan, Kalmykia, um, Yakutia in um, Siberia and um, Buryatia as well. And there's, I think there's, you know, twofold reason we did a piece on this late last week that that activists from these regions see one is that they're poor regions. And so there's just a sense that, you know, there's going to be less pushback um, for these men being recruited um, to send to fight and die in Ukraine than there would be if you're sending the sons of the, the kind of relatively wealthy or elite from the cities in Western uh, Western Russia, but also that they're ethnic minorities. I mean, there's, um, you know, I spoke to activists from these regions and, you know, some of them are describing this as ethnocide. You know, they just see this as you know, callousness on the part of the Kremlin, and then it may perhaps just care less about those that are not uh, Slavic Russians. Thanks for addressing those regional disparities, Amy, because we did have a question on that from our subscriber, Mark Burkhart. Mark, thanks for that question. Um, hope Amy answered that for you. Um, Jack, this, this all sounds like it's in very stark contrast to what military recruitment looked like in Ukraine, right? Is that mostly because Russians don't want or care for this war? Yeah, I mean, certainly the Ukrainians, uh, months before the war, kind of began the formation of what's been called the, the territorial defense, the backbone of their defense forces beyond uh, the folks that were already in the military. Uh, they shut down the borders uh, to allow military-age men to stay in the country, so potentially they could mobilize those. But we haven't seen sort of the piecemeal partial mobilization that Amy described. I think the most important thing, and in talking to U.S. officials, as I've been traveling around, uh, the, the world and in Europe. Um, one thing that's that's been really clear has just been there's always been a concern within Washington that if, if Putin does try this type of mobilization that we're now seeing, he wouldn't have the, the political capital to do it because at the beginning of the war, of course, they, they've staged it uh, consistently as a special military operation, something that's limited to, to Russian speakers, to the Donbass. Uh, now it seems to be much more clear, of course, uh, this is this is a wider war. It was clear in the beginning to the West, and and now it's just becoming more clear to to the Russian public that didn't buy into this. So when you have a, a mobilization of this scale, which is unlike anything the Russians have seen since World War II, and just not the political foundation to back it up, you're you're looking at something that's very shaky politically for the Kremlin. 
So not only were these high tensions on Russia's borders due to these tens of thousands of Russia's, Russians attempting to flee the military draft this week, there were also high tensions in Europe on Tuesday because there were some suspicious leaks that were discovered in two gas pipelines that run from Russia to Germany under the Baltic Sea. Robbie, you were in the region just recently last week. Tell us a bit about the immediate impact of these leaks on Europe's energy supply, which, as we all know, is already quite limited in scope. And tell us what we know so far about who's behind it and what the implications are. Well, in terms of who's behind it, um, no officials are, are in the West are publicly going on record yet, um, but, but it's clear their number one suspect here isn't Luxembourg, right? Um, and so what, what they're saying at this point, um, NATO officials, senior US officials, including Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, is this is a clear act of sabotage. Um, these two pipelines had become some, something of a political lightning rod in Europe, um, piping Russian gas into Europe. Um, it was a very controversial uh, uh, endeavor. Um, and now with, with Europe trying to wrest itself from all of the influence, the geopolitical influence of, of Russian oil and gas, trying to completely separate their economies from that as best they can. Um, we've, we've seen this uh, very uh, conveniently timed sabotage uh, leak explosion on, on these undersea, uh, undersea pipelines here. Um, I mean, in addition to the devastating environmental impact this could have, um, it's another sign that if everyone's suspicions are correct, um, uh, that Russia is behind this, that Russia is, is effectively burning burning its bridges uh, quite literally if we include these pipelines with with Europe on its economic ties um, which is a which is a radical transformation in how we've seen uh, European Russian ties uh, since the end of the Cold War even amid tensions uh, with Russia even amid Russia's initial invasion and illegal annexation of Crimea in 2014 you know the economic uh, trade kept flowing um, energy imports from Russia kept flowing in. Um, and that this is, uh, to borrow what Jack said, a, a totally different ballgame on the energy front here. And what's your sense of how European nations are responding to this news ahead of the upcoming winter? And realistically, what can they do, if anything, in addition to sanctions to further punish Putin if he is indeed the source of the leaks? I mean, I think this energy question, you know, with these spiking energy prices is keeping almost every European politician up at night um, in terms of how to how to protect their uh, their country. I mean, I, I talked to some European diplomats yesterday who said, look, because we had such a warning from from February when Russia first launched its invasion, we've been cobbling together as much extra oil and gas as we can, trying to get gas from, from other major suppliers, U.S. liquefied natural gas, Norway, Algeria, Azerbaijan. So as of now, the, the EU's own storage uh, is, is about 80 to 85% full from the latest data that I've received from, from European diplomats um, that, that I spoke to yesterday. So they're not as worried as they were earlier this summer or um, even in the spring after the initial invasion that they were going to go through winter you know, completely uh, cut off from the tap of Russian gas. Now there's a lot of there's a lot of things that could affect this. You know whether everyone will try to responsibly use energy. How cold this winter could be. We've obviously seen uh, increasingly extreme weather uh, across northern Europe, um, uh, both both hot and cold because of climate change. So there are a lot of what ifs now. But the European officials I talked to say we are trying to stock up as much as possible before winter hits, and we're not quite as worried as we were a few months ago. Um, but at the end of the day, they're not out of the woods yet. 
I'm curious about your reporting trip that I mentioned to the Nordic Baltic region last week, where you spoke to dozens of officials and experts, all of whom were questioning what Putin will do next and how long he can retain in power, given these disastrous turns for Moscow. What are the most striking takeaways from your time in that region? Yeah, I mean, I think there's three takeaways. The first is that, um, you know, Russia and Putin used to be, um, you know, seen as a long term threat. Um, you know, a big geopolitical headache, but he he was predictable. It was predictable what Russia would do, how would we count, how we would counter it. That's no longer the case. Um, you know, as one senior Finnish defense official said to me, um, you know, for the first time, we can't see what's around the corner in Russia. And that really worries us. Uh, and when the Finns get worried, that's when the rest of us need to get worried here. Um, I, I think it's clear, as as Amy alluded to in uh, in this mass mobilization of conscripts, um, this has definitely weakened Putin's power base. We don't know what that means yet. Um, you know, there's not a challenger waiting in the wings to challenge his power. Um, but but you know, there's there's a, everyone in Europe now is 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 in this guessing game of of what comes next, who's up, who's down in, in the Kremlin. And Kremlinology is always a bit of a, a guessing game. Um, you know, as, as someone put it to me, uh, I was talking to an Eastern European diplomat. Uh, he said it was like uh, playing fantasy football without knowing half the players. Um, and I think that's a really apt analogy here. You just don't know what's going on inside this enclosed circle of the Kremlin. But the fact that um, we've seen sort of destabilizing effects from, from this mobilization, that Putin's power base is weakening, um, and that um, if there is anyone rising as, as a possible threat to him, it, it is not the, the liberal reformers, the pro-Western oriented Russians. It is the far right, the hardline nationalists that, that are, that are you know, posing the biggest challenge to him, saying, why aren't we going harder in Ukraine? Why aren't we attacking them more um, with heavier weapons, um, you know, unfettered uh, attacks on civilian infrastructure? That's the pressure he's getting right now. And all of that points to bad news, regardless of what happens next uh, in, in Russia for the West. You also reported that many experts had another fear as well, which was that if Putin succeeds in grabbing land in Ukraine, the Baltic states could well be his next target. Now, NATO has, of course, beefed up its presence in those states for years. But what did you hear from defense ministers and officials in the Baltic states you visited on that particular concern? Yeah, and and Jack and I just did some reporting on this. I mean, the, the main consensus is even as Russia has stripped away a lot of its military assets that used to be in the region, Russia still poses a long-term threat. Regardless of what happens in Ukraine, how poorly things go militarily for Russia there, um, the, whether Russia will reconstitute its its military and its Western military district is a matter of when, not if. Um, and that's a real concern. I don't think just because, you know, you're seeing, um, you know, high rates of battlefield casualties for the Russians, that means the, the Baltic states are suddenly breathing a sigh of relief. Um, um, to the contrary, they're, they're getting more worried. And, and if it's three years, five years, 10 years, um, they see a real real viable threat from Russia if if it does not fail in Ukraine. Jack, you and Robbie did speak to top officials in Lithuania and Estonia yesterday about the decline in Russia's troops on the western border. Tell us what you're hearing from them. Well, this is a pretty eye-popping figure, and I, I want to give credit to Robbie for getting here first through hours of, of meetings with uh, Lith or with uh, Latvian and, and Finnish officials. Uh, what, what he told me is they, they didn't really stop, but um, up to 80% of the troops that were actually on the, the Finnish and Baltic borders from the Russians have now departed. 
um, and as few as 6,000 remain. I mean, this is a key piece of territory. One of the places on the NATO flank that if you talk to Pentagon planners for the last 30 years, they were worried about the most since the end of the Cold War. And it was just kind of amazing to see the responses that we got from, from subscribers, um, from Twitter handles about this piece, because it was just sort of the, the emperor has no clothes moment for Putin. It's, it's look, Putin's not going to preempt a NATO attack. Putin's not worried about NATO. Ru Russia is invading Ukraine uh, for its own reasons, to, to expand uh, the, the power, the imperial power of Russia. And I think, you know, we're going to kind of continue to see this this trend that, you know, perhaps Putin isn't the master strategist that we thought about before. As he ups the stakes in Ukraine, uh, this just becomes a, sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy where the war gets bigger, it expands, it takes up more of uh, Russian foreign policy, and it just becomes more difficult to project power or to change the calculations of Western planners. But as Robbie said, you know, the, the next moment around the corner for the Russian military Nobody really knows. Talking to European officials aboard the Queen Elizabeth here in New York, that's what I heard this week, too. So that's frightening a lot of people. Amy, I want to move to some criticism from NATO countries in recent weeks. The German government under Chancellor Olaf Scholz has faced mounting, mounting pressure from Eastern European allies and political forces in his own country to drastically increase the scale and type of military support he sends to Ukraine. Tell us more about this story. So there's quite a long backstory to the argument that we're seeing today, um, which is that there is has been a long-standing divide within Europe, um, broadly between Western countries and countries that were formerly members of the of the communist Eastern Bloc, about the threat that Russia poses. And so before the invasion, before February, you saw in Western Western European countries, I think particularly in Germany, a willingness to continue working with Russia. I mean, the Nord Stream pipeline was under construction and had not been. Uh, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline had, was under construction, hadn't been suspended until just days before the war. Um, but Eastern European countries for years now have been warning about what they see as, as Putin's intentions and his his, uh, his revanchist ambitions. And in some ways, the war kind of put an end to that debate. I mean, Europe is very much on the same page now about who Vladimir Putin is, what his intentions are. But this kind of debate has kind of continued at a more kind of detailed level with regards to military aid for Ukraine. Um, Eastern European countries, particularly the Baltic states and Poland have given huge amount, huge amounts, particularly on a per capita basis uh, to Ukraine for their military support. Where this argument really plays out is depends on how you assess military aid, whether you assess it in overall terms or whether you assess on a per capita basis. If it's the latter, Eastern European countries have certainly gone above and beyond. But Germany, much as it's been criticized for not doing enough to support Ukraine, is actually, I think, the fourth largest military donor after uh, the US, the UK and Poland. So they are still giving you know, huge amounts of uh, military equipment to Ukraine, and, and they were the first nation to give uh, Western battle tanks to, to Kiev as well. And so it is causing these kind of these, these tensions and these rifts. And as, as Robbie reported from the Baltic states, I mean, officials from the region, from, from, from the Baltic states are speaking out openly against Germany and, and, and pushing them to, to do more to support Ukraine, you know, on closer to a per capita basis in the way that they have. Uh, I want to go to you again, Jack. This was a question from our subscriber, Timothy Reed. Following the referenda Russia organized and its new threats, the U.S. has warned of grave consequences if Russia uses nuclear weapons in Ukraine. The State Department has been involved in private communications with Moscow. What's your knowledge of these communications? And what do you think we can expect to hear, if anything, from the U.S. on this? 
Amelia, what we know is that these have come at, at almost the highest levels in, in U.S. government, but that the interagency and the, the Biden administration has kept these warnings deliberately vague to try and keep the Russians on their guard, aware of a potential surprise from the West, basically an, an unimaginable uh, con an unimaginable um, response from the West, even if um, the Russians use a tactical nuclear weapon as opposed to a larger strategic nuclear weapon. Uh, but I think what's been really galling to me just over the past few months has been the change in the mood of Western officials, of European officials, about the potential of a Russian nuclear strike in, within Ukraine. Uh, just being aboard the, the Queen Elizabeth again yesterday and, and talking to folks, um, really what, what came to mind was just that people did sort of keep in mind the option of Russia putting nuclear weapons on the table. It was sort of an unthinkable scenario earlier in the summer when I was traveling with Secretary Austin, uh, when I was talking to Pentagon officials and U.S. officials. And, and what it seems like is kind of uh, sort of putting some some issues into this is just the question of of how expansively the Russians think about this conflict. Uh, the Russians have have normally used their military doctrine uh, to use larger nuclear weapons uh, for larger conflicts, a potential conflict with NATO. If, if that's not on the table and this is more of an existential conflict for the Russians, do they then resort to a nuclear strike, a smaller nuclear strike? or a bigger nuclear strike, even if it's the risk of, of NATO or other countries coming into the fray in some way, shape, or form. Uh, so it, it's just a, a conversation that has completely changed over the last few months. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, one more question from our audience. Amy, back to you for this. This is a topic I know you've done a lot of reporting on, which is the Wagner Group. I have a great question from subscriber Aldrich Boris. He says, what can you tell us about how important that group's role is in Ukraine following the Russian partial mobilization? And maybe just a little bit about what it is as well. This is one of my favorite topics when it comes to Russia. And I'll have a piece coming out about this uh, tomorrow if I'm being ambitious or early next week. Um, so stay tuned tomorrow for that. <laughs> okay, thanks. <laughs> Got it, boss. Um, it, so I spoke yesterday with um, Andrei Soldatov and Irina Boragan, who are two um, very distinguished Russian journalists who really specialize in the FSB and the security services. Um, and I was asking them exactly about this question. And they were saying that, you know, the Wagner group is actually attracting more recruits because for some Russian men, it's seen as a as a more appealing alternative to the Russian military. Um, and that's because uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who, who bankrolls the Wagner Group, and who finally admitted that this week after years of denying it and years of suing journalists for claiming that he does, um, he has begun to put a lot of effort into, into his PR that, that he takes good care of his troops. You know, he's strutting around prison yards trying to recruit prisoners to go fight in Ukraine. When soldiers are killed on the battlefield, I mean, for, for regular Russian army troops, their bodies either never go home or they go home in very hush-hush circumstances. But Prigozhin has been helping to fund funerals. He's been showing up. He's been speaking to the family. And so he's, you know, it's not true. It's still just as brutal and just as unpleasant to fight on behalf of Wagner as it is for the Russian army. But he has invested a lot into this idea that he really takes care of his men. And, and also, I think salaries are definitely higher amongst mercenary groups as well. So it will be interesting to see whether the mobilization actually gives a bump to um to the Wagner group fighting in Ukraine. And just going back to the point about, you know, Prigozhin kind of coming out of the shadows a little bit, this is something that I'm hoping to get, get out in the piece. But, you know, people are beginning to ask, is, you know, is he becoming a bit political? You know, this is a man who has been kind of uh, 
Putin's jack of all trades. He ran the Internet Troll Factory, which, you know, famously interfered in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. You know, he's kind of been on the sidelines as a bit of a Swiss army knife, ready to bankroll and, and, and kind of dive into whatever kind of murky task Putin has for him. But he's now kind of coming out of the shadows. And I wonder whether he may be trying to position himself for actually some kind of formal position, either in the Russian government or the military. Now, he's deeply unpopular amongst the Siloviki, the security services in Moscow. But, you know, Putin remains the, you know, the head honcho. And it all depends on, on how Putin views Prigozhin and where he may decide to put him in the future. Well, I know you'll be watching that space. Thanks, Amy. That's all we have time for, unfortunately. Amy McKinnon, Jack Detch, Robbie Grammer, part of FP's award-winning team of reporters. Thank you so much for joining me today. It was great to have you on FP Live and hope our audience will join us for many more reporter notebooks in the future. You've been listening to the latest discussion from FP Live, foreign policy's platform for live journalism. If you're interested in learning more or want to watch the next FP Live, check out our website at foreignpolicy.com slash live. Thanks for listening to Foreign Policy's playlist. Our production team includes Tal Alroy, Laura Rosbrow-Tallam, Rosie Julin, and Maria Jimena Aragon. I'm Ravi Agrawal. Thanks for listening. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 